Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This podcast is brought to you by irishnewspaperarchives.com, the gateway to Ireland's great historical past. irishnewspaperarchives.com is one of the best resources out there for fans of Irish history and genealogy. The online archive is accessible from your home and has over 70 newspaper titles, the oldest of which begins in 1738 and it continues right up to 2019. Whether you are trying to trace your family or want to read about the major events in Irish history, I cannot recommend Irish newspaper archives enough. As a listener to the show, they are now offering you 30% off monthly and yearly packages. You can get this offer now by going to irishnewspaperarchives.com forward slash podcast and use the code HISTORY30. That address is irishnewspaperarchives.com forward slash podcast and that code has changed so it's HISTORY30. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire and this is... The Last of Her Kind, The Life of Peg Sayers, Part 1. Today's podcast is a journey, an experience of sorts in an Ireland that is now lost and gone forever. This journey will take us into two poor communities in the remote Dingle Peninsula at the edge of Europe in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Our guide is one of the greatest storytellers in modern Irish history, a woman called Peg Sayers, who left a vivid account of her people the communities she lived in and the world she inhabited as it stood on the precipice of sweeping change. Peg was born in the 1870s as Ireland was reading from the Great Famine. She lived through World War I, the War of Independence and the huge change the 20th century brought to Ireland. While she covered these major events, she has also left us with a mesmerising account of what life was like in a world where large families lived in two-roomed cabins, what marriage was like, how people loved, and how they dealt with the harsh losses life inflicted on them. This is lots of the detail you just won't get in history books. Over her life, Peg Sayers lived in two distinct communities, 
in Dunquin and then the Blasket Islands. Only three miles apart, they had much in common, but they were also remarkably different, so each is worth exploring on their own. This episode then will focus on her early life in Dunquin, while part two will follow her to the Great Blasket. One crucial aspect to her fascinating life and the life of the community she lived in was that they were all native Irish speakers and their memories were all recorded in Irish. Obviously, for this podcast, I've used translations. These are read by Neve Nireen of the National Library of Ireland, but to give you a sense of what the Irish original sounds like, Neve has accompanied each quote with a few lines of the original Irish. Robin Flower's words are read by Sean Sheehy. To begin though, we won't jump straight into this world. First, we need to set out on our journey and find our bearings in the late 19th century. So we'll start with the perspective of an outsider, someone a bit like us, and then we'll look at West Kerry through the perspective of Peg Sayers. First though, there's some housekeeping I want to take care of. The ninth anniversary of the podcast is coming up on March 20th. It's hard to believe, but yeah, this show has been running for nine years. And to mark this, I want to give a little back to the patrons of the show. There's no way the show would have lasted as long as it has without the support of listeners like you who have become patrons. So I'm launching an exclusive patrons book service where I'll be giving the patrons copies of some of the books I use in research that I no longer need. It's just a way, I suppose, of giving a little back for the people who support this show. For this and the next podcast, I have two English translations of stories by Peg Sayers to give away. Now, if you want to become part of the team on Patreon and get this and lots of other bonus features, including early access to the show, ad-free episodes, episode guides and bonus podcasts, they're all available for you at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Irish podcast. Now, however, we'll embark on that journey to the west of Ireland and a long gone world, starting, as I said, with the perspective of an outsider, someone a bit like us. When Barbara Flower told acquaintances of her father's dying wish, it surely raised an eyebrow in some quarters. Her father, Robin, had been very much part of the British establishment. Born in Yorkshire, he had been educated in a private school in Leeds. At the turn of the 20th century, he had studied classics and ancient history at Oxford University before beginning an illustrious career at the British Museum. He had been a fellow of the British Academy and was even awarded an OBE, that's an Order of the British Empire. Therefore, when he died in January 1946, there were surely those who considered his dying wish odd, to say the least. While he was cremated at Golders Green Crematorium in London three days after his death, he had stipulated that his ashes were to be taken to a far-flung corner of Ireland and scattered on the Great Blasket, a stunning but often bleak and isolated island in the Atlantic Ocean off the coast of Kerry. Robin Flower could scarcely have chosen somewhere more different to his home in London or Yorkshire where he had grown up as a boy. Nevertheless, nine months later, in September 1946, his daughter Barbara set out on what must have been an emotional journey to fulfil her father's dying wish. First she travelled to Dublin, then southwest across Ireland to County Kerry before reaching the town of Tralee. 
From Tralee, she began a 40-mile trip down the Dingle Peninsula, which took her to the remote village of Dunquin in West Kerry, where the final leg of the journey began with a three-mile boat trip out into the Atlantic Ocean, before she finally reached the place where her father wanted his ashes scattered, the Great Blasket Island. The journey from Dublin to the Great Blasket, even in the 1940s, was one that took her not just through changing landscapes in Ireland, but also the people and life itself were noticeably different. As she moved west down the Dingle Peninsula, even the language changed, with increasing numbers of people speaking Irish. Indeed, few articulated this dramatic change in life better than her own late father. In 1944, Robin Flower had published a book called The Western Island or The Great Blasket, where he captured what this journey through Dingle to the village of Dunquin was like. It gives us some sense of what it must have been like for outsiders in the early 20th century. You forget London, Dublin and all the cities of the earth and with Gaelic faces and Gaelic voices about, you stand in the gateway of an older and simpler world. The train draws slowly out of the tiny station and idles along between the mountains and the sea to the junction for Castle Gregory. There it spills the tithe of its passengers and faces for the hills. Gradually past unfolding valleys, over bridges that span the tumbling mountain streams, along the steep sides of heather hills, it makes the ascent of the pass. Dingle Bay comes into sight and at last the train with its dwindled company drags into Dingle Station and taking a car you jolt along the dirty street that runs from the quay front over the bridge and way into the open country. A little further along the road, the other view breaks on you. The sea and the island and the far Atlantic horizon. Below is Dunqueen, whitewashed houses here and there and a pattern of field along the hillside. Then the cliff breaks to the sea and three miles out lies the island. This is the ultimate shore of the old world, the islands of the westmost of all uninhabited lands of Europe and until the time of Columbus there was nothing beyond but the waste seas. However, by the time Barbara Flower brought her father's ashes there in the 1940s, this old world, as he called it, was changing. For example, belief in superstitions, just one expression of this very different society, was already massively in decline. When talking of the belief in fairies, Robin Flower himself had said, They will be gone in a few short years. The young people no longer believe in them. While it surprised some that this was where a man like Robin Flower would want his ashes scattered, there was really nowhere more appropriate. In many ways, our understanding of this part of the world, West Kerry and the Blasket Islands, is Robin Flower's greatest legacy. During his many visits, he recorded vast amounts of the island's folklore and the unique way of life there, but he also did something far, far more important. He encouraged the islanders to write and tell their own accounts of life, instilling a confidence that their lives and their everyday experiences were important. It was this that today gives us an unparalleled insight into how this rural community, not just on the Great Blasket, but also the nearby community around Dunquin, survived in what were very difficult circumstances. With Flower's encouragement, three extraordinary figures emerged who recorded the unique society that existed there. These were Marisha Sulawine, Tomaso Crihan, and the most famous of all, Maraid, or as she was known, Peg Sayers. Peg was, as Robin Flower recalled, 
A natural orator with so keen a sense of the turn of phrase and the lifting rhythm appropriate to Irish that her words could be written down as they leave her lips and they would have the effect of literature with no savour of the artificiality of composition. With the support and encouragement of Robin Flower and even more importantly a Dublin school teacher Moira Nikaneda, she put these skills as a storyteller and an orator to great use, revealing what life in this part of the world was like. In the 1930s, when Peg Sayers sat down to tell her life, she had to dig deep into the recesses of her mind to recall the days of her youth. At the time, she assumed she had not long left to live and opened with the evocative line which proved Robin Flower's observation that she was a masterful storyteller. I am an old woman now with one foot in the grave and the other at its edge. In spite of, or perhaps because of this feeling, that she had little time left on earth, she recounted her life in the most vivid detail, beginning with her childhood in West Kerry in the later 19th century, which was radically different to Ireland in the 1930s and almost unfathomable to us today. Born in 1873, the great hunger loomed large over her childhood. Although it had come to an end 20 years earlier, most of the adults Peg knew had lived through these life-changing events. Both her mother and father were survivors of the famine, an event which had devastated Vickerstown, the townland near Dunquin, where Peg grew up. In 1841, the population had been 82 people, but in 10 short years, this community had nigh on been destroyed, with only 33 people remaining in the area as the famine came to an end in 1851. These terrible days were collectively referred to as Androchel, which means bad life or bad times. But this literal translation from Irish does not convey the full meaning of these words and what they would have meant to people in the late 19th century. Thomas Sayers, Peg's father, who had been a teenager during the famine, had clear memories of the traumatic death of his uncle. Desperately poor, his family had managed to construct a makeshift coffin. However, while it was being carried to the graveyard, it fell apart after Thomas himself stumbled. Another perhaps slightly more unusual memory of the Great Famine was a story Peg recalled from her youth about a man called Peter Frawley who was quite explicitly proud of the fact he had never let his family die of starvation. Peg recalled Frawley saying the following to her. The Viendrochale Brett Grime career Nadina Buchta is either Favosh or Vunverk Akalis Nemsen. The bad times had a firm halt of the poor people and they were dying all bunched together in those days. But praise be to God the Father, I let none of mine die for the want of a bite. I was strong and able in those days and it was easy to catch up with me when I loot on board. Frawley's reference to loot is him talking about piracy, a common enough phenomenon in coastal communities during the famine. While Peg could capture the impact of a major event like the Great Famine with great personal accounts like this, she revealed something far more unique. In her autobiography, she offered insights into internal family life in a poor household in the late 19th century, which I found really intriguing. This is something few historical sources would ever even have access to, let alone take an interest in. But as I say, it's really fascinating stuff. So Peg's family were very poor. 
Although this didn't define her childhood because she was by and large unaware of the poverty she lived in because her friends, her neighbours and pretty much everyone she knew was equally poor. However, looking back from the 21st century, we notice aspects of her life that we would find incomprehensible today. For example, references to food in the early stages of her life refer almost exclusively to quote-unquote the potatoes because her family probably rarely ate anything else. Despite the fact the Great Hunger had exposed the risk of relying almost exclusively on potatoes, the poor still did not have the land or the resources to diversify their diet. While this meant hunger was never more than a failed harvest away, the Sayers family struggled against what is arguably an even more crushing factor in their lives, and that was the extraordinarily high rate of infant mortality. While Peg's mother had given birth to three children, her older siblings Sean, Podrick and Moira, she would go on to suffer unimaginable trauma and lost nine children in a row before finally Peg survived. While the scale of her mother's loss was severe, high infant mortality was common in most families. Peg herself would lose several children while the death of her sister-in-law in childbirth underscored the risk it posed to women as well. Now from a 21st century standpoint, we often have this tendency to write off the suffering of the poor and kind of say that they were somehow tougher. Peg, however, illustrates very clearly this was not the case and her mother never really recovered from the loss of her children. The Vimawaha Vukt Borha Krata, the Yashkiv Nabashti, the Vetagfal Vasherhi. My poor mother was troubled and distracted as a result of the death of her children. Day after day, her health and courage ebbed away until in the heel of the hunt, the poor woman hadn't even the desire to live. She also had very vivid memories of her own brother being unable to cope after the death of his wife in childbirth and how he collapsed physically and emotionally. Now next I want to look at what Peg's recollections revealed about something almost never discussed. This is what people in late 19th century Ireland found attractive, how marriages work or as the case may be didn't work and how people dealt with domestic problems. But first a short. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Recently, I had a minor argument with a close friend that brought up things from my past that I really needed to get off my chest. I think we've all been there. Now, I found therapy a really great way to work through these issues. For me, 
I really like online therapy. And BetterHelp is a really great online service that allows you to make space for therapy no matter how busy you are. BetterHelp is convenient, affordable, and gives you the support you need, but also works around your schedule. It's really easy to get up and running with a therapist on BetterHelp. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do your sessions by text, phone, or video call, whichever suits you best. It's all about flexibility, working around your schedule. At the moment, BetterHelp are offering listeners to the show 10% off their first month. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash irishhistory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash irishhistory. Break. Producing this episode of the podcast has been fascinating. While I read as much of Peg Sayre's works as I could, I also wanted to get a feel for the time and place she lived in, and one of the best resources I had was my subscription to Irish newspaper archives. I was able to read through stories, news reports, and even court reports from the time when she was a child, and it really helped enhance my understanding of the period. I'm delighted to have them as a sponsor because I know that you'll enjoy and love using the archive when you take out a subscription. It will give you access to over 70 titles of Irish newspapers covering the last three centuries of history. Pretty much every community in the country is covered at some point or another. As a listener, they are now offering you 30% off monthly and yearly packages. So in their monthly package, you can get access to the archives of over 70 papers for just €20. You won't regret it. So take advantage of this offer at irishnewspaperarchives.com forward slash podcast and use the code HISTORY30. That's irishnewspaperarchives.com forward slash podcast and the code is HISTORY30. Peg Sears and her family lived in a two-roomed house. This meant that there were six people sharing two rooms, one of which was a kitchen. This in itself now was by no means unusual in late 19th century Ireland, but the dynamic became increasingly complex as her parents began to age. In a time where there was no social welfare, parents were dependent on their children to provide for them when they could no longer work. This created a natural tension in a house as power then transferred from one generation to the next. This could be complicated even further when the children began to marry. So this account will make little sense without looking first at the general division of work in the Irish economy at the time. Domestic work was seen as exclusively women's work and the adult woman in any house was expected to carry out all domestic chores from cooking to cleaning along with some farm work as well it should be said. Given Peg's mother was poorly after the loss of her children these duties fell to her older sister Moira when Peg was a child. However, when Moira began to think about marriage, this presented a problem because once she married, there would be no woman of the house able to do this work because, as was customary, she would move into her husband's house. Therefore, this actually led to Peg's older brother, Sean, marrying so his wife could take the place of woman of the house. So when Peg was only seven, her brother Sean married a woman called Corth Boland who moved in to the Sayers household which in turn allowed her sister Moira to marry. Now this strange version of what sounds like musical chairs almost 
comes across as an extremely loveless approach to marriage from the standpoint of the 21st century, but Pegg's insights make it clear that attraction was inextricably linked to wider society and the ability to provide for one's family. This is hinted at in what people found attractive or thought were positive attributes at the time. When talking of her father, she described him as a broad-shouldered and strong man. Her brother Sean, who Peg idolised, was also described as strong. Physical strength in this world, where the poor did physical work to provide for their families, was obviously really important. This might sound callous or, again, as I said, loveless, but in this world where starvation and potentially the dreaded workhouse could result from poverty, people had to think long and hard about whether a marriage could provide food for them and a potential family that might come along. However, while marriage may have been influenced by necessities, this did not mean that couples always got along. Far from it, as Peg's experience revealed. The marriage of her brother, Sean, saw his wife caught Boland move into the Sayers family home. However, Peg never warmed to her sister-in-law, describing her as fiery-tempered and apt to flare up on occasion. Caught Boland, now the woman of the house, attempted to exert dominance over the household and her parents-in-law, which led to a struggle of sorts with Peg's parents, which would last well over a decade. This would only come to an end when Peg's parents accepted their defeat. There was also no real alternative given her parents were, at the end of the day, reliant on their son Sean and his wife Koth Boland for food and shelter. But imagine that, for ten years those tensions played out on and off in a two-roomed cabin. In this environment, this underlined the importance of socialising. Indeed, the fact that communities like the one Peg grew up in was intensely communal was perhaps the only way people survived in such environments. And this leads us on to the most important form of socialising, something known as Bohantiach. While there were numerous pastimes, unquestionably the most important pastime in rural Ireland in the late 19th century was something known as Bohantiach. This comes from the Irish for cabin, Bohan, and is a practice that saw people gather in each other's homes to entertain each other by telling stories. Now for communities with a good storyteller, the chance to hear them I suppose was in many ways like the latest Netflix releases for us. While this might come across as a pretty harmless or innocent form of entertainment conjuring up images of harmonious communities sitting around a fireside, these stories often had a much deeper meaning and were very important for these communities. They were educational, they were how the collective community shared important information, their history and for want of a better word, their moral code. These stories could glorify certain types of violence and illegality but these stories were very important to frame it in, as I've said, a moral code. You see, to understand this, it's worth bearing in mind that communities like the one in Vickerstown, where Peg grew up, could not trust the authorities to inculcate their young with what was right and wrong. This was because people, like the Sayers family, had a very complex relationship with law and order. During Peg's childhood years, Ireland was in the grip of something known as the Land War. This saw tenants, like the Sayers family, engage in a prolonged conflict with their landlords, who were supported by the police, the army, the courts and the authorities. Beginning in 1879, the first three years of the land war were incredibly bitter, with dozens being killed across the country, many of these in Kerry. For Peg and communities like hers, therefore, a righteous person who followed the moral codes of their community was not necessarily the same thing as a person who lived by the letter of the law. 
Often they had to stand up to the authorities to stop their friends and family being evicted, so community heroes often broke what they would consider unjust laws. The stories they told to entertain each other at night were often shaped by these historical events. For example, Peg herself told the story about a major celebration she witnessed in Dingle in honour of a woman called Bredine, who had just been released from jail after a six-month sentence for hard labour. Bredine had known who had stolen a horse from the police barracks in Dingle, but refused to tell the police. Peg makes it very clear she was supportive of Bredine and other acts of resistance, many of which had undertones of violence, something that flies in the face of the portrayal of Peg as a conservative old woman, which you'll often find. Incidentally, this story of Bredine was not made up. I was able to find the incident in the Irish newspaper archives. The horse would later turn up dead on a beach near Dingle. This was just one though of numerous incidents like this which Peg recalled that saw the poor defend themselves against the police and the authorities. For children who would hear these stories, it helped to educate them about the complexities of the world they faced and how to navigate the rights and wrongs where justice and the law were not the same thing. While Peg's community could mobilise maybe against a landlord, it was constantly though being undermined by a more silent attacker and this was the effects of poverty. Even though Peg was largely unaware of it as a child, it was one of the defining features in her life. The Sears household, like that of most of their neighbours, was increasingly under financial pressure as Peg grew up. As they grew old, her parents were unable to work, while her brother Sean, living under the same roof, had started his own family. It was somewhat inevitable, therefore, that Peg was put to work as a teenager. However, even though she was young, there was simply no work available in Dunquin. However, her parents did their best and they were able to secure a position for her in the house of distant relatives in Dingle. Although it was only 15 kilometres back along the Dingle Peninsula, for young Peg this was a world away from home. While the people she worked with did treat her well, life was difficult and lonely. Many people spoke English on a daily basis, which for Peg was extremely difficult. English did not come naturally to her. Later in life, she said, I have very bad English, because there was no English going in my time when I was young. And another thing, I was too much given to Irish, and I inherited that from my father. Nevertheless, Peg spent a few years working in this house, before she had to return to Dunquin due to an illness. But returning home did not mean any kind of return to stability. The older she got, the more exposed she was to the upheaval poverty inflicted on her and her community. Reaching young adulthood, she and her generation faced one of the most difficult decisions they would in their lives. How, and perhaps more importantly, where they were going to make their way in the world. And the spectre of emigration, which had shadowed her since she was born, now came into full view. While she was recovering from the illness that forced her to give up her job in Dingle, her best friend from childhood, a girl called Coith Jim, decided the time had come for her to emigrate to the USA, taking the opportunity of accompanying another family from Vickerstown who were emigrating. However, before she left, Coith Jim did promise Peg she would send her money for a fare once she had had time to earn it. While it would probably mean Peg would never see her friends or family again, it was an enticing option. Sure enough, she could remain at home, but there was little hope of ever escaping the poverty she grew up in if she did that. However, as Coyth Jim was preparing to leave, the full implications of emigration became clear. The community organised something called an American Wake, 
a party to bid farewell with rituals reminiscent of a funeral. This was a final goodbye in many cases. Peg remembered an older neighbour, Murish, who was going to the US where his children had already gone before him, greeting Peg's mother at the American wake with the words, We will never drink another glass on this side of the grave. This American wake was followed by a solemn walk where the community accompanied the migrants along the road to Dingle before each turned their own way, with the emigrants continuing to Dingle and their family and friends heading back to Dunquin. Understanding what this must have been like is very, very difficult. When they turned their backs for the last time, both groups did so in the knowledge that they would never see each other again. For parents in the group returning to Dunquin, they were only too well aware that their younger children would one day grow up and some of them, at least, would cross the Atlantic as well. On the day Koth Jim left, Peg actually continued with her and the other migrants on the road to Dingle, even though the rest of the community had turned back. Having recovered her health, she was hoping to secure another position in a house in Dingle, because while Koth Jim was planning to send her money for a ticket to the USA, this would take years. So Peg had to say a painful goodbye to her best friend, softened in the belief she would see her in the coming years when she eventually emigrated to the USA. However, Koth Jim's experience in the US highlighted how many Irish people struggled and that it was far from the land of plenty that poor people like Peg Sayers often assumed they would find there. While Peg did receive a letter from Coyth Jim telling her to prepare to leave Ireland around St. Patrick's Day 1892, this would never come to pass. Peg did leave the job she had secured and returned home only to receive another letter from Coyth Jim saying she had hurt her hand and she would not be able to send the money to Peg after all. What actually happened to Coyth Jim in the long run is unclear. Peg seems to have fallen out of touch with her friend who never returned to Ireland. Little did Peg know at the time, however, Coyth Jim's inability to send her money to buy a ticket to the USA changed the course of Peg's life in ways she could never have imagined. While Peg was ultimately unable to emigrate as she had wanted to, she had given up the second job she had acquired on the assumption she would be leaving Ireland very shortly. This, however, in itself was actually a positive development. The job was that of a servant in the house of a farmer where the work was not only difficult, but she was never fed properly and was often hungry. Over the course of 18 months, she never returned home once, even though it was less than a day's walk away. Now, TV shows like Downton Abbey, as I've said on the show before, have distorted the reality of life in domestic service. Not everyone worked in lavish houses and they nearly all faced very difficult working conditions. While Peg was desperately disappointed not to emigrate, events quickly took her life in a very different direction. Only a few weeks after she found out Caught Jim would not be sending her money, her older brother Sean arrived home one evening to inform Peg he had arranged a marriage match for her to a man called Pats Flinto Goheen. Like most things in life, the poverty of the Sayers family had shaped this. They couldn't afford a dowry for Peg, so this limited the pool of potential husbands. In this case, Pats Flinto Goheen was from the Great Blasket Island, an equally poor community, so he was happy to marry Peg without a dowry. Events moved extraordinarily rapidly once her brother Sean set the match up. Three days later, her potential husband, often referred to just as Flint, arrived at the Sayers' house with two other men from the island. 
Peg herself had very little conversation with Flint on this occasion, but interestingly her father did give her the choice whether she would marry him or not. When he asked her the blunt words, Will you go to the island? Peg was very direct about the choices facing her and what influenced her decision. If she didn't marry, she would have to go back working in houses, something she disliked, while if she married the islander, she would have her own household and home. There was no talk of physical attraction at this stage. That would come later. To us today, this seems like a very bleak view of the world, but as we've already seen, attractiveness in the 19th century was shaped by very different concerns, largely as to whether a husband could provide for someone or not. In this case, Pat's Flint O'Gohin could provide for her. The match was made and a few days later the couple were married, scarcely having had a single conversation. This decision was the act that shaped the rest of Peg Sarah's life. Whether she and her husband liked each other or even got on was inconsequential now. Divorce and separation for Catholics was unimaginable. Within a few days of her marriage, Peg Sayers moved from Dunquin to an even more remote community, one that while only three kilometres away was radically different to the one she had grown up in. In the next podcast, we'll follow the life of Peg Sayers to the Great Blasket Island, where she offered insights into a culture and a way of life that is now lost and gone forever. Until next time, Sloan. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.